politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to the Conservative Review podcast here at our Northern Command Center just outside of Baltimore, Maryland, where the Teletubby Republican congressional leaders are actually on their annual aptly named retreat to conjure up what their sense of purpose is, what their mission is. Uh, You also had last night the Democrat debate, which all my colleagues are obsessed with. Anytime Democrats talk, we always want to know, Democrats, what are they doing? Who is engaging in the Republican debate? You know, it would be nice if at this retreat, just a couple miles south of me, if we actually had a discussion along the lines of what you and I have had the last couple of days in honor of the 18th anniversary of 9-11. We've been discussing 18 years later, how do we reboot? reprogram, redefine what is it we're fighting, how we're going to fight in the best way. I think we've worked on a very substantial vision for really, if you go back several weeks, homeland security, border, immigration, gangs, crime, drugs, tied into foreign policy, Iran, Afghanistan, what's in our interest, what's not in our interest, what's the proper tool for dealing with each thing, which case shouldn't we be dealing with things. Yesterday, we spoke a lot about the the lack of a vision is creating this vacuum that is confusing the president, where the more aggressive so-called hawks have fallen on their swords, have not properly given a vision of what it means to be tough on Islamic terror, on broad threats that are not Islamic in nature. Some are, some aren't, like China, for example. And then the president is left in his mind with a false choice of, gee, it's either they tell me I can't just pull out of Afghanistan, so I'm stuck with that garbage, and it's terrible. We're losing lives every day, billions of dollars for nothing. And then, well, if that's what being tough means, I don't want any part of it. So now I'm just going to try to avoid any adversity at all costs. Hence, the president's obsessive um, really trend now of negotiating. Negotiate with the Taliban. Negotiate with Iran. We we are very close to the president doing Obama 2.0 on Iran. Negotiate with North Korea. It's all because the president has not been given a broad vision that foreign policy and national security, A, begins first and foremost, the 80% foundation with homeland security, border, visas, immigration, Muslim Brotherhood at home, all things we really never heard from Bush immediately after 9-11, which we should have. And then certainly we do need a robust, strong foreign policy, but it does not mean what we've been doing. And we laid out the broad principles for that. But I wanted you guys to get a more expert take on the specific military strategies to carry out some of those broad principles we try to outline of what does it mean to be strike and maneuver instead of hold and build and nation build? What exactly does that look like? how that saves us money, how that preserves and conserves our resolve, our resources, our fighting men, and and really just their training to do what they're supposed to do, not do what they're not supposed to do. 
that's why we're going to have a guest on today who's been on no no stranger to you guys um but we want to have him on more often we used to always have foreign policy friday maybe we'll make a regular uh, occurrence a regular segment here um before we bring on dan i just want to make one note michelle malkin our friend is holding a rally as we speak in rockville maryland against sanctuary uh, policies there in defense of ice um great turnout there i'm a little embarrassed that i didn't show up after i plugged it but it just didn't work out with scheduling i do have my uh, deputy nate madden is is there for conservative review he'll be reporting on it um i'm gonna have an article out today on the lessons of that i'm also gonna have a very important essay on out today on john roberts it turns out he flipped his vote on the census there's a very important lesson in that as to why conservatives cannot put their faith into a conservative Supreme Court and why we need to fight judicial supremacism. But again, back to national security, I want to give you a vision today on Afghanistan, and then as much as we can branch out from there, none of this should even be conservative. This is, anyone who is listening should be able to appreciate this all. With no further ado, Dan Steiner, as you all know, served in the Air Force for 32 years, uh, retired as a colonel uh, after his time overseas, both in Kosovo, CENTCOM, uh, Desert Storm in Iraq. He went on to help command the Texas military forces under Governor Rick Perry. Very specifically, as we have this conversation, I want you to remember his core experience is in airbase ground defense, kind of the mixture of infantry in the Air Force. And it's to be very important in understanding what tactics we need to use in the world we live in, particularly with the so-called war on terror. With no further ado, Colonel Dan, thanks for joining us again, and thanks for listening to me ramble on. Hey, how are you, Dan? We're doing great. So look, I know you listened to the show yesterday. Um, I want you to put the commas, periods, exclamation marks on some of these principles we laid out. And the way I want to set the table is as follows. These are speeches you and I will never forget. I'm, I'm younger than you, but I still you know, certainly remember it. You know, Obviously, Bush's bullhorn speech at Ground Zero, the next week where he gave the speech before Congress, almost like a State of the Union address, um, giving the Taliban an, an ultimatum. And then two weeks later, October 7th, six-minute speech from the Oval Office announcing uh, the commencement of Operation Enduring Freedom. And he said very clearly, these carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. By destroying camps and disrupting communications, we will make it more difficult for the terror network to train new recruits and coordinate their evil plans. Again, at the time, it sounded very simple. We really didn't have a conventional enemy like we had with the Japanese military attacking us on Pearl Harbor. It was at its foundation, an immigration problem, a Muslim Brotherhood problem, an Anwar al-Awlaki problem in America. It wasn't so much a military issue, but we did need a response. And the most immediate source of where it physically came from in that iteration of that attack was the training camps in Afghanistan. It was very defined. And then I want you guys to listen to these 20 seconds of President Bush right here. To all the men and women in our military, every sailor, every soldier, every airman, every Coast Guardsman, every Marine, I say this, your mission is defined. Your objectives are clear. 
Your goal is just. You have my full confidence, and you will have every tool you need to carry out your duty. Listen to that. Your mission is defined, your objectives are clear, your goal is just, and I will give you every tool you need to carry out the mission. Colonel, 18 years later, how the hell did this happen? You know, Dan, you and I were talking yesterday, and when we finished, I, I had an epiphany. And, you know, at my age, epiphanies can be dangerous. Um, we walked into the 21st century and we were talking all the right buzzwords. It's kind of like the old Baldridge days. If you remember when Baldridge just kind of flock of seagulls and everybody going. And we had all this Teletubby vision of how to do things a new and better way in the corporate world. We walked into the 21st century as a nation. And we did not realize, although we spoke buzzwords, we didn't realize what we were walking into. We've walked into a much different world. And when I look back at how we responded to 9-11, we went back to a process that is basically new paint on old wood. You know, we, we spoke all these things about lighter forces, um, asymmetric warfare, all these things. But as time went on, we, we ended up on the ground in Afghanistan, <clears throat> on the ground in Iraq, fighting to our enemy's strengths. We're on the ground, you know, the quintessential boots on the ground. Yes, we were using air assets. Yes, we were doing some things that were truly technologically new, the drones and ISR and whatnot. But we slowly ground back into what the military, especially the Army, and and don't get me wrong, I love my brethren and sisters to death, but the whole theory of Klautswitz and you must occupy your enemy's soil in order to defeat them, you must do everything we eventually did ground us back into the days of fighting a war like World War II. Here we go. We've got forward operating bases, main operating bases. We're doing denial points and volleys on the ground. We did everything to come back to our enemy's strengths. And, and I'm going to tell you something. I told you this yesterday. I'm retired. I've got my pension. If they come after me because what I said in my pension, I'll hire a lawyer and, <laughs> and, and fight them. But here's the deal. The war on terrorism turned into an industry. It went from the nation being angry to the nation being resolute to it sliding into an industry. Vehicles didn't match what we were trying to do on the ground. We, we, we were not prepared for the IED environment because we were taking non-combat vehicles into a combative environment. Soft-skinned Hummers, we got armored Hummers. Um, we saw a little bit of this in Serbia, and we really didn't learn our lesson. But we started fighting this hybrid thing on the ground. Here's the problem. We should have ever been on the ground, Dan, and I told you this yesterday. And I know people are going to say, hey, he's an Air Force guy. Here comes the Air Force doctrine on. Uh, let the Air Force do it all. We don't need anybody else. 
I'm not saying that. I'm more green than I am blue. And I've had the army tell me that for for 25 (laughs) years. But we own the space above our enemies. We own it outright. And we started out doing just what we needed to do in Afghanistan. We played whack-a-mole. And we had some special operators on the ground. And I'm going to tell you an ugly story. And I told it to you yesterday, and I'm going to tell it to you again today for for a classic reason. When I was at Camp Doha in Kuwait, and I was on the planning team for the invasion of Iraq, I had been in theater for over a year, combatant, air base ground defense commander, and, and 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 by the way, Colonel, this is the 2003 Iraq invasion. You were yeah, in yes, Desert, yeah, Desert Storm. You're, you were also right. in Desert Storm, but this is your second go around 2003. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I'm on this planning team to put together the plan for the Department of Defense, United States military and its allies on how to invade Iraq. This is how do we do this? If we're going to go in there and take Saddam out, how do you do that? So that process is a tremendous process. It is extremely complex. In that process, I sat on the what was called the Air Force's attachment to CENTCOM is called was called CENTAF. I was the force protection rep to that package. So, so my job was to understand and my cell, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and a couple allies, how do we get everything into the theater, keep it safe? Get it ready to go to war without it being it's, you know, the military is most vulnerable when it's building. Mm. And that's a dangerous time. If your enemy comes after you while you're building, you're extremely susceptible. So as we're building this. And, and folks, plan, keep, keep that in mind with the term nation building. Yeah. Well, OK. <laughs> no, no, we'll go down that rabbit hole here <laughs> in a minute, I guess. Um, I'm sitting in a room. There's about 400 of us. And we're listening to the Army lead for the planning team, which I think was out of 5th Corps, out of Georgia. And in the conversation, I won't name names, it doesn't matter, but a statement was made early on in the planning process because there were some arguments in the room on how to do this. How do we successfully take out Saddam? The statement was made, I can tell you one thing, this won't be a damn air campaign this time. And for me and the blue suitors that were sitting together in the blue cell, as it's called, we all sat there and looked around the room, said, when did we ever say we wanted this to be our game? And then it dawned on one of the guys I was sitting next to, I think it was an F-15 driver. He said, oh, I get this. This is about budgets. How, How in the world does the Army justify a budget to Congress if the second major conflict in a row the nation has to fight is one by one component, basically two, because you you get naval air assets, very short legs. Yes, I'm prejudiced. Navy (laughs) aircraft can't go very far. They can hit (laughs) tankers, but the Air Force owns the sky. Navy kind of helps. I mean, that's all there is to it. So, but you're saying Desert Storm in, in, you know, 10, 12 years before was one in the air. There was nobody left to fight. When we went forward the second day of the ground war, I I was a young lieutenant. I took an intelligence team security detail forward to go look at some Iraqi armor that had been killed to see what kind of radios were in it. 
So we went into the burned out part of the battlefield. A lot of Palestinians still run around because he let a lot of Palestinians in to try and populate Kuwait. And there was nobody left. That By the time the Air Force had gotten done in two consecutive weeks of playing just whack-a-mole, anything that was left was backed up towards Baghdad. He knew he couldn't fight us. It was a terrible army to begin with. It was a bunch of people who was thrown in uniform. But we won that war in the air before the ground war ever started. That's why the ground war only lasted 100 hours. Mm. When we started planning for Iraq, there was a mindset of, well, we're not going to do that again. And that wasn't based upon what's right. That wasn't based upon what's effective. Our nation owns from the ground to the moon. We're not going to use that as our major hammer. We're going to come back in on the ground as well, because if you don't do that, how do you go to Congress and justify yeah. a budget for tanks and, and artillery and everything else. That's an ugly statement. But here's the reality. That statement doesn't come just from senior military leaders. That, that's not a four-star or a component chief in the Pentagon saying that. Those are politicians saying that. Uh, Dan, here's a story I didn't tell you. I say it's fast so we can keep going. Senator Graham. I remember the guy well, Fort Worth, Texas. He shoved the F-16 down the Air Force's throat. Hmm. I know this because I was told to it by fighter drivers. A single-engine aircraft. No fighter pilot in the Air Force wanted to fly over an ocean in a single-engine aircraft. We had the F-15, and then all of a sudden, here comes this lawn dart, as they called it, for an aircraft. And everybody in the Air Force was like, we don't want this thing. (laughs) <laughs> well, by God, we got it anyway, because where was it built? I mean, fill in the blanks. Fort Worth. Oh, my God. Graham. Okay. So that mindset, Dan, I'm not going to sit here and blame my Army brethren from a planning meeting for starting the Iraqi campaign on the wrong foot. It's organic to political think. And I go back to my statement about we're in the 21st century and we're not thinking like it's the 21st century. So I, I want to, Colonel, I want to move this along a little bit. What you, the foundation, if I'm not correct, let me know. But the foundation you just laid out is that part of the problem, why our leaders now up to President Trump are confronted with a false dichotomy of we either pretty much have to just like pull out of everything and, you know, look very weak and but we don't want to do that versus being tough. And when I say being tough, even with soft power, well, we can't do sanctions because then we have to have teeth behind it. And we might one day it will drag us into kinetic action and kinetic action must look like trillion dollar two, three thousand lives lost with no outcome, no mission. That's the only deterrent we have, and we don't want to do that, so therefore we're not doing it, so therefore we don't have deterrent. This is the quandary everyone's in in Afghanistan now. No, right? Bush laid it out. We had to deter that immediate thing, but what we should never have done is try to own the land of 21 tribes, the Pashtuns, who would never work with the others, and therefore we killed ourselves with that. We owned the dumpster fire. We owned it. We should have never done that. But now that we did, no one 
the more lives and money you flush after it, no one wants to end that. But everyone knows we need to end it. No one knows how to end it. And then in the meantime, you have the military industrial complex enjoying themselves, constantly getting their budget for it. You have the quasi private entities making a killing off of it. And nobody is giving a strategic vision of how does it look to to remain tough, remain engaged, but not in an entangled, costly way. So I want you to take your theory on the fact that we control this, guys, because I never understood this. I thought we spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year so we have the best toys that nobody else has. So why aren't we using them so we don't have this trillion-dollar costly rebuilding? And by the way, building roads engaging in nation building while you're being shot at, which is the worst position you could be in on the ground. Yeah, we, we tried to turn Afghanistan into something that was never in the first place. It was never the center of some ancient empire. It's not like we were rebuilding Rome or Beijing or even Baghdad or Damascus. You know, cities, Afghanistan has never been that. But we go in on the ground in Afghanistan because Quite frankly, one major service component needs that validity. We, we need that relevancy of there's a doctrine out there. And, and I got to tell you, from a guy that suffered having to read Clausewitz every phase of my professional military education, I got so tired of me trying to figure out how to be a good commander based on something a guy in the 1700s said. <laughs> it's the 21st century. If we can play whack-a-mole, and Dan, I told you this yesterday. The very first day we realized that the Taliban was still in bed with al-Qaeda, and, and we knew it from the get-go. We also knew that the Pakistani ISI is the Taliban's keeper. We've known that since day one. We've knew that since before the towers went down. But somewhere in this process, you gear up the United States military, you take the men and women of the military and you say, go out there and punish our enemies. But there's some limitations here. And then we jump right back into a Cambodian environment of we can't touch the people who mm -hmm. really control the Taliban, the Pakistani and ISI. Now, at the time, we had a friend, General Musharraf in Pakistan. Now, the Clintons hated him, by the way. Quick little antidote. When Musharraf got ready to test his first nuclear weapon, he called General Zinni, the CENTCOM commander. I've heard this story forever. I can't prove it. I just heard it forever. He called General Zinni at CENTCOM and said, hey, you need to let your boss know I'm getting ready to pop my first nuke. <clears throat> I figured it out. They were good. They, they trusted each other. They were generals in a combatant mine area. That infuriated the Clintons. I mean, Bill Clinton, it, it just did. So they have this dichotomy of opinions of what should be going on. Flash forward to the Pakistani ISI incident with the Taliban. We knew from day one these guys were responsible. We should have went straight in, started playing whack-a-mole. Number one, take whatever they want to hold in Afghanistan, which we did, Bagram and a couple other key places. Take what they think they want to hold. Just take it from them. And then go tell the ISI or go tell the Pakistanians the ISI is next. The next set of bombs that start dropping, 
wherever the ISI works in Pakistan, we're going to bomb it. And we don't care where it is because they are the puppet master of the Taliban. It's 19 years, 18 years later, and I sit in my house and have to hear a story about how we're going to invite the Taliban to the United States to negotiate with them about getting out of Afghanistan. I told you yesterday, when, the to- when they finally pushed the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan, armor is their pride and joy. The Russian live by armor. They believe in it. It's the heart and soul of their nation and their military is their armor. They deliberately made the Russian tanks take their turrets to the rear, which is a, a symbol of non-hostile. Virtually, I give up and made them go back across the bridges, turrets to the rear. They humiliated the Soviet Union as they were leaving. They humiliated us last week. They, they know they're coming to Camp David, and they still execute a plan that kills one of our soldiers. Yep. Who are we negotiating with? Go to New York City during the 70s and tell one of the five crime families, hey, I want to negotiate with you about you taking over for the other crime families and running New York City. What? We would never do that. What were we doing? But, who but Colonel, the president into doing who that? talked him into doing that? And we know the State Department, these folks. But here's the problem. Here's what the president needs and he's not getting. The president will likely respond to that by saying, what the hell do you want from me? Look, I don't want to negotiate with these guys, but I what's going on in Afghanistan is unacceptable. It's unacceptable to lose another life with no mission, no understanding of what we're doing. Um, it, it doesn't really speak to our threat today, 18 years later, the Taliban. Um, I don't want to just pull, pull out a helter skelter. So I need some sort of negotiation and that's why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it to be weak. I'm doing it because there's no purpose of us being there. What is the, at this stage, this is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. I'm going to saddle you with and what you need to give a vision to us here today. What is the alternative to between what um the teletubbies well there's two types of teletubbies there's the negotiating teletubbies and then the other side is like stay the course don't tell the taliban when we're getting out don't we don't want to cause a nine another 9-11 stay the course it's only twelve thousand troops let's just and then they don't complete the sentence i don't know what the just do what what would you advise that we do there now so, so how do we get how do we get out of Afghanistan? I mean, that's the and ultimate question. I don't even know if that you know what. Let me rephrase that. I don't even know. To me, the question is not so much how do we get out of Afghanistan, because we we have assets all over the place. And like I said on the show yesterday, we need to keep some of these air bases anyway. How do we get out of the entanglement of we are on the hook for propping up a Sharia, frankly child molesting type of government that's in this doing you know because i hear the stories from the soldiers all the time you know guarding the fobs and the the um afghani military outside the stuff that goes on with the boys there i mean they're indistinguishable from the taliban we're getting killed and shot at every day spending 80 billion dollars a year or something like that rebuilding rebuilding them it's that entanglement that how do we recalibrate our forces in a way that 
speaks to the threats that exist in a way that the forces are designed to address it for much cheaper that's not going to cost lives. We could roughly be in the theater at some level where we've been in, in South Korea forever, but with some purpose. Could you define a purpose to us being roughly in that theater in some capacity in a safe, defensible environment serving some purpose? Sure. We owned an air base called Manas. It was this hellhole north of Afghanistan and Kirkmanistan. Well, you know, pardon my Dutch, but to all of us that were did these missions, it was shit Stanistan. I mean, all of them were just this garbage pile sitting out in the in the country. Was it Kyrgyzstan? You said, yeah, yeah. The the base is called Manas, was called Manas, and it mm -hmm. got to be a real political football around 2014. Uh, Hillary Clinton did some dope deals for selling fuel to us there through the crooked president of the country, and it all went to hell. Moscow was mad in the first place, Dan, because when we settled this air base in 2001, uh, when my guys were on the lead aircraft, when the, when the thing landed and the hatch opened, there were two old worn-out Russian officers who decided to put their uniforms back on to greet us. They were still there running a brothel in a bar, <laughs> even though the Russians weren't there anymore. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. That base worried the Chinese and worried the Russians because they looked at it and said, what is that for? I mean, we suddenly popped up an air base on the back side of China, an air base that we could launch anything from. And we suddenly popped up in the middle of the stands, which Moscow didn't like. Moscow went along with it because it was close to 9-11. Got it. But we ran Manas up until 2014. And then it got so crooked, so corrupt, such a pile of trash that we jumped out and went to Romania. So can you do effects-based operations in Afghanistan? And, and I'll tell you, at the end of the day, something you and I will talk about as time goes on is the thing called effects-based operations. That's the key to the 21st century warfare, effects-based operations. Write it down. You and I can talk about it a okay. lot. We went to Romania and opened a facility in Romania. And it worked. And it still works. If you own the sky and you own things above the sky and you're looking for people, you can find them. We're so much better at that now than we were in 2001. We don't need 15 Marines watching a volley in Afghanistan anymore. We can watch the volley. If someone comes through the valley, and we've told the Afghan government, somebody comes to that valley, they're going to die if they come through that valley. Do you understand? And they say, well, you know, we can't control the presence. I understand you can't control your peasants. Neither can we. Here's a map. If you go into these areas, the Air Force calls them kill zones. If you go into this area, you're going to get hit. And we do that from somewhere else. That's the power of air power. You don't have to be on the ground. You don't have to have soldiers committing suicide because they're in a yeah. motor pool unit and they're going over for the seventh time in their career, not to get to go over there and be a Rambo hero and go on. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's exhilarating to kick doors 
and be combat rattled. It's not exhilarating to go over there and be part of that support mechanism that goes over there. And you sit in the base camp fixing vehicles or making yep. meals or working on computers for 12 months while your kid has a fifth birthday since you haven't been home. This is a stupid, antiquated or, concept. Or if you're doing combat, you're in a squadron, you have a very small group of people precariously walking around some mountain together with an Afghani ally that you never know when he's going to turn on you and shoot you or lead you in an ambush. And that that happens all the time. That's not sustainable. That's not, you know, there, there's no end to it. So are you in fact, put, you know, saying that I am correct when I say you don't have to end this nonsense and be on the hook for looking weak. What you could do is, and the nation building and the presence on the ground keep the bagram air base i'm assuming you agree with that i mean yeah why not keep, we've got we've got billions of dollars locked up in that place it's ours yeah so so keep it there um now and then strike and maneuver as needed mow the lawn as needed if you see training camps you have a list of people you're saying we don't need this precarious ground force which i want to talk about maybe later if we have time there is a need for ground forces in the right sort of war um but not in this situation but can you just explain what it what it means so they'll say look well if we don't negotiate with the taliban well what's going to happen the taliban will just come sack Kabul. um so what would we need to secure in other words, what are the rings you would want to create? What are the interests you want to identify and how would we secure them? So you go to Pakistan. Excuse me. You go to Pakistan and you sit down with the cricket player. You know, this this guy, I, I can't stand the guy. He's He's got himself in a whirlwind with India right now. And he, he's way, way, way out of his league. But he was a popular cricket player. He's kind of like a movie actor that you know becomes president, you sit down with him and you say, when I show up, you bring the ISI chiefs into the room. And when they come in the room, you only address them. You let the cricket player sit there in the corner. And you look the ISI in the eye and say, I'm done with the Taliban. And everything they do, I blame you for. Mm. So when I come back, I'm coming for you. This is the Israeli philosophy towards yes anything that happens in gaza i'm so glad wait, wait I just, i'm so glad you brought that up i, I just want to i'm sorry to cut you off here but i want to explain this just for our our listeners israel is much more on the hook for islamic terrorism in the region than we are okay i mean they're they're there and yet when is the last time israel lost a soldier in another land now I want to just exempt from this discussion literally right over the border within a few miles in Lebanon that that's at their border. But I mean, in Syria, in Iraq, when's the last time they owned tribal warfare, owned other people's dumpster fires? When's the last time they they handled the electricity and the plumbing and built roads in Raqqa? Yet they're not perceived as cutting and running and being weak. Continue. Yeah. So Israel got tired of what was going on in Lebanon, and they went into Beirut. When they left, there was no Israeli plan to rebuild Beirut. So again, this antiquated theory in the 21st century of, 
You have to occupy your enemy soil, and then you have to do nation state building, because if you can develop democracy, then you won't have any more battles in coming out of that area. Well, at some point in time, that may have made sense. It's the 21st century. Do we economically stand in a position where from here going forward, we one, can afford to do that, two, have the resolve to do that? We are a nation where if we lose two or three troops in a day, it is a tragedy. And losing a troop is a tragedy. But we have enemies that are willing to lose tens of thousands of troops in a day. So one of my concerns, Dan, at the end of this day of of this discussion is, we continue to put new paint on old wood. We, we talk buzzwords in D.C. We, we say things that make it sound like we're evolving into the 21st century mindset. But yet we still got Cloudswoods. We've still got you got to occupy your enemy's soil. You, you still got to have this particular military piece of hardware because you need it. You know, that, that but, whole but, philosophy. But, but wait, wait a minute. I, I want to add to that. It's even worse than what you're saying, because we don't even define the enemy. In other words, that was designed when you're at war traditionally with your enemy. And that meant that country. And that meant not just the regime, the king, the whatever. It meant the people. And in World War II, see, the difference is we went to war with the Japanese and the Germans it wasn't the emperor and, and the Nazi regime. We went to war with them. And when we battered them in submit to submission, we got an unofficial surrender from the whole nation. We killed millions of them. Um, we aren't willing to do that now. And in, in that very speech I quoted from earlier on that in, in uh, Bush's Oval Office, or it was actually in the treaty room, um, his speech announcing enduring freedom, he said, he said, then he said in his 9-11 speech in front of Congress, we're not at war with the Afghani people. We're going to drop supplies. We love you. You're great. That's part of the problem. So we don't go to war with them. And then we put our troops on the ground, but they're, they're kind of at war with us because they hate us, even though we say we love them. It's untenable. You, you can't. I, you know, like I said yesterday, if the Russians came into Romania or Bulgaria, I think they would appreciate us. And then, yeah, that would kind of work to kick them out and they would sustain our ground presence. But name me a country in the Middle East that that would work in. Yeah. Again, I go back to what I said in the beginning. Never, ever go onto a battlefield fighting to your enemy's strengths. Mm. Fight to your enemy's weaknesses. We go into a battlefield where we're going to fight 20 guys that move and scoot around all over the place and blend in with the population, hoping that when you come after them, you'll kill a few civilians. And then your own media will make a big story out of how we're killing civilians. Hence the story of Yemen right now. Every time something happens in Yemen, it's about how the U.S. is supporting the Saudis and they're killing civilians in Yemen. Well, how do you know they're civilians? So don't <laughs> fight to your enemy's strengths. Fight from a position they cannot defend against. Above them. If a Taliban guy walks outside, if he sees a glimmer in the sky, he should have urine running down his leg because he knows what's coming. They, from 2001 to about 2005, 
from all the guys we captured and interviewed, they could hear an aircraft, typically an A-10. They could hear an aircraft and decide to stay in a hole an extra day. That's effects-based operations. Mm. That makes your enemy alter everything. They I can't even get to that little town over there to go link up with my guys because every time I step out of my little hole, I hear an aircraft. Contrast that to having a convoy of 15, 20 soldiers precariously, aimlessly patrolling around a population that doesn't like you, where IEDs could be planted anywhere. I mean, that's been the story of Iraq and Afghanistan. And just to you know, really come full circle, the time is really, uh, wow, I don't know where the time has gone. We have to have you back for part two. But to bring this over to Iran, and this is what scares a lot of us. If you read between the lines, and it's pretty much, I mean, it's all public now. The president <laughs> is, again, he has not seen what this alternative vision looks like to remain engaged, but not in a way that you're so on the hook in such an expensive and painful way. And also, it's better sh strategy anyway. You save so much money. Um, but what he sees is what I just described. And he's like, I can't, I don't even know what to do with Afghanistan. And these guys like Bolton, they're pushing me to sanction and get tough on Iran, but that's going to lead to some sort of action. And every action in the Middle East winds up looking like this. So therefore, I don't need this dumpster fire. I don't need another Iraq and Afghanistan on my watch. I'm going to negotiate. I think that's a fair and accurate portrayal of at least one side of what goes through trump's mind depending on the time of day how, yeah. how would you so, get him out of that so you, you you watched bush jr's speech and it gave he learned well from his dad you give clear definable statements as a commander-in-chief to the forces and he did that little video clip yeah. you're talking about gives that the problem is everything after that begins to get molded and reshaped by everybody around that. And you get a president and he gets in a room every morning and you and I have talked about presidential briefings before. You get in there and a singular person, a president, gets bombarded by a whole room full of agencies and then a staff. And then what does he hear? Who does he hear it from? How do they shape it when they tell it to him? And then they look at him and say, sir, make a decision. Well, that's a recipe for really hard times. And you're going to be prone to make mistakes. Trump went in there with the right philosophy. If it doesn't matter to me, why should I get involved? But there's a fault line, a dangerous fault line with that. You can't become Roosevelt. And, and, and I, I think you believe this. You can't sit back and say, I don't want another event on my watch, but that event's going to come anyway. The Taliban's not going to come. If you go do what you should do to the Pakistani ISI, the Taliban are done. They're opium traders, they're thieves and vagabonds, they're running yeah. around their little huts, and that's all they, they, they do. They don't have Hezbollah you, Unit 910 no. in America 
going no. around. They're not global. They don't have the billions of dollars that Hezbollah and Iran have. And that's always been my belief. And I think you effectively demonstrated how even though they don't directly affect us, but if we don't want to look like we're weak and we still want to identify certain guys, we could do it from the air, keep our air bases. Let's move over to Iran. Take 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 that thesis over to Iran. So the Iranian issue, shy of getting rid of the mullahs, and, and like you said, we had a chance in 2009 in the Green Movement to do that. Obama completely blew it. He completely, uh, you know, by, by that time, he was already deeply in love with the Muslim Brotherhood, and that's a whole different oh, yeah. discussion that you and I can go down. But he let the Green Revolution not pull off what it could have pulled off. The reason the Iranians were so paranoid by the Arab Spring in 2011 is because they, they thought it was 2009 being regenerated by probably the CIA or somebody again. They saw it as a, a deliberate attack on them once again. They're not going to go away. If you can't get the mullahs out of the way, the next mullahs coming. This isn't, but, but, a, but, 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 this Colonel, isn't a personality. If we thing. would mind our own, I'm, I'm just saying this facetiously. If we would mind our own business and not sanction them, you know, they're not going to bother us. That's insane. What you'll <laughs> see is a war between the Israelis and them. Because, Dan, at the so end of the day— So why should we care? So some people at, are asking me, why should day, we care? I, I, I will tell you what some Israeli military friends have told me years ago. Israel really doesn't care what the U.S. says to Iran. They don't care what Moscow says to Iran. You know, I think Netanyahu was in Moscow this week. Mm. I'm pretty sure he was there this week. Those conversations really revolve around one thing. You need to do what you can to limit what Tehran's doing. Because when the moment comes that I have to, Israel doesn't care what anybody else says. Israel doesn't care about collateral damage. They don't care about, oh my gosh, look at all the civilians you hurt. None of that matters. It doesn't matter. If we don't find a way as the nation who we are to keep Israel from having to deal with Iran, then that day's coming. And when that happens, we can't control the event. So now you're Roosevelt. Now you're sitting in the White House and you're watching the British and the French try and take on the German machine. And you're like, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. And then all of a sudden, you've got to get involved. And so now you don't control. And there's the shipping proactive. lanes. There's the shipping yeah. lanes, too. I mean, the Persian Gulf. You can be proactive or you can be reactive. See, but by the way, I'm just, I know, as I'm talking, I'm just thinking now, it's a simple point. Afghanistan is notoriously landlocked. I mean, the Taliban don't have any ability. I mean, the problem with Iranians is that they're both screwing us on, um, the Straits of Hormuz, and then also the I'm forgetting the Straits of it's in the in the Gulf of Aden um, with the Houthis off of Yemen. That's the issue. Those are shipping lanes. And, you know, I am as much of a fortress America than anyone. I am the king of sovereignty. I probably have written more articles on sovereignty than anyone in the entire country. And I don't say that braggingly. I mean, I've written thousands of articles on immigration border. That's a foundation. There's an extra 10% that we need to have a strong, effective presence because we do have international interests, right? But so, we just have so to words, define them. So words mean something. And, and Bolton said words that probably are so radioactively toxic 
that he became radioactive. When you give a speech or you have a conversation and you use words that sound or even say regime change, you know, those taboo words, for some reason, those are taboo words in our government right now. Well, what happens if regime change means I'm not going to come in there and build Las Vegas in Tehran. I'm going to come in there and make sure you never threaten me. And then I'm leaving. And when I leave, I don't care what kind of position you're in. And if but, the people don't like it, then they're going to throw overthrow you. Get in. Yeah. Take out your enemy's capability to do harm to you or your allies and but, get But out. Dan, wouldn't that cost uh, trillions of dollars and, and so many countless American lives? Because isn't Iran much stronger than the Taliban and Saddam was? A there were speeches about how good Saddam's military was before the war started. Actually, I remember I that, yeah. <laughs> they scared the hell out of me. I was 14 miles from the border <laughs> when the war started, and I thought there was this German panzer division sitting up there. The same speeches about Iran exist today. If you make the United States military and its allies take Iran's military capabilities, it will happen so quickly and so overwhelmingly that anybody in the countryside, and if you follow those kids on Twitter, let's face it, the youth of Iran hates the mullahs. They hate them. So if the mullahs suddenly don't have the maneuver room to do things, what are they going to do? And, now, here's the yeah. caveat. Dan, Dan, here's my caveat. Here, here's how I say we end Iran. And you've heard me say this before. We don't have the resolve to go in there and put a bullet in the back of a mullah's head. No. CNN, MSNBC, they, they would come unglued. Moscow does. If you want to deal with Iran, you work the dope deal with Moscow. Because as much as the mullahs hate to admit it, they're a reluctant proxy of Putin. So if you want Iran to be neutralized, then you go to Moscow to work the deal. Where was Netanyahu this week? He knows exactly he where. Gets it. Yeah, he gets it. No, he, he, he doesn't have to worry about the mullahs. Go see and, Putin. And, and I would argue that if we would have spent <laughs> the last 18 d years doing what you're talking about, where we don't own other people's dumpster fires, they fear us, we don't fall on the sword of Islam, we don't build, we use our air superiority, then, and we, and we, and regime change, because it's not just the Teletubbies and the State Department, people like myself and, and conservatives have soured on, because regime change doesn't look tough, it looks like the social work we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan, we don't want that anymore. But if that would be what we do, I wonder how much we would even have to go kinetic on the mullahs because when we would start to get aggressive, they would know that that's what there is to come. But instead, they know we don't do that. They know it's the Iraq and Afghanistan model and they know as such, we have no, we're done with that. We're exhausted from it. So they know they could screw with us, be the pirates of the Persian Gulf all they want and we're out of options, but we're not out of options. I mean- Oh, that, yeah, they, they, I, I if you want to end it this way for the next show, I'll tell you this. The mullahs sit there today, one, they can't stand it when Netanyahu goes to Moscow. Because one, they don't know what's being said. 
Two, when they ask the Russians what went on in the meeting, they know they're not going to get the truth. So they know there's something going on there. But when they look at D.C. right now, they see Trump getting in the campaign mode. He, he's, he wants quiet waters getting in the campaign mode. So he's adverse to dumpster fires. So they push the envelope, the tanker issue. Now this other tanker has docked in Syria to unload the oil that we said, by God, that tanker ain't going anywhere. So as they push and push, they know they can get away with that. What they're scared of is the end around run is Netanyahu's going to Moscow saying, I am not going to make the people of southern Israel run outside every damn night, night after night, week after week, because a group of idiots sit over there and lob five rockets and go back to bed. And then when I do something about it, I'm the bad guy. I'm going to clear it out and I'm going to clear I'm going to clear Hezbollah out. And I'm going to get rid of this sickness. And mm. I, I need you to know it first because I know you own the mullahs. And, and that's and that's really the issue. There's a Hebrew word for it. It's called Ain Brera. There is no choice. That's the word, the catchphrase, of the IDF. The problem is we we have too much rope to hang ourselves on where where we sit. So we have the ability to have the uh, military industrial complex where we just make decisions based on inter-branch rivalries, stupid strategies, make money off of it, and all sorts of political considerations because we don't see the dangers. Um, We're about out of time. I really appreciate you kind of taking this to the next level because I think nobody is doing this and it's extremely dangerous and I'm seeing it more than any other time that Trump, who is inherently strong, If he feels he's out of options because no one is presenting this other alternative of what a true America first hawkish position looks like. You know, he's going to fall back to the gravity of the swamp and, you know, and, and, and again, it's not just the swamp. It's there is some legitimacy mixed with it that even a conservative would say, wait a minute, what's with all this nation building? But then they're going to parlay that into weakness. And I think this has created a lot of false choices. I, In my view, Bolton did not do a good job presenting what an alternative hawkish position looks like. And that you know allowed the State Department to convince Trump to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And we're going to need your, need your voice in the coming days, Dan. Um, let's do this. We'll do a Foreign Policy Friday more often. I know you have a lot more to say on China, some other threats. We're going to go through these as it comes up. Folks, let me know what you want to uh, ask of, of the colonel. We could talk about it offline and bring it on the show with him, without him. Um, we'll, we're definitely going to have him back. We've had a very productive week here, and, and this is the type of stuff we're going to do on every issue because, frankly, there's no Republican vision on immigration. There's no Republican vision on health care, on budget on any market issue. It's the same thing with domestic policy. One one bad policy engenders another. One bad consideration um, creates a dependency on another thing, and nothing is being guided by prudence. Nothing I'm saying is even conservative. It's just, it, this should be universal. And I know we have a lot of non-conservative listeners. God bless you for willing to hear, you know, something out of the box. We need out of the box thinking. We're going to provide that to you. Same place, same time on Monday. Till then, have a terrific weekend and God bless.